While the last 200 years have witnessed impressive scientific and technological progress, why has there not been comparable progress in our understanding of human values? What has made progress possible in the natural sciences? Why have the humanities failed to live up to the same standards? How can the gap be bridged? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. We're going to be discussing those questions and related ones today under the heading of how can humanity make moral progress? I'd like to welcome you uh, to our podcast. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. Uh, joining me today for the first time on the podcast is Mike Mazza, who's our newest junior fellow at ARI. Uh, he's also an adjunct philosophy instructor at Bentley University in Massachusetts. Uh, Mike recently earned his PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University. And uh, we're really happy to have you with us, Mike. Good to be here, Ben. I just want to let our audience know that uh, at any time during the broadcast today, if you have questions about the material that we're discussing, you should let us know. If you're watching in Zoom, please use the Q&A module. Pop a question in there. We'll be monitoring those that come in. Otherwise, we would suggest that everybody else uh, post your questions in YouTube's Super Chat feature if you'd like to have those rise to the top. It's a good way to, a good way to do it is to support the channel through Super Chat. So Mike, I mentioned at the top of the program that it, there's this, I think, widely recognized disparity between our level of technological and scientific progress on the one hand, and our, what you might summarize briefly as our moral progress on the other hand, and there's a lot that goes into understanding what moral progress is, but I think that if you uh, take a step back uh, and think just in kind of common sense terms about uh, what people take morality to be, this, is, this disparity is real, though it's not that there's not been any progress over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you had a chance to read any of the recent books by Steven Pinker uh, this is one of the things he likes to talk about, uh, the amount of progress humanity has experienced over especially the last 5, 500 to 750 years. I mean, if you look at a book of his like The Better Angels of Our Nature or uh, at Enlightenment Now, he goes through all kinds of charts and graphs uh, detailing what kind of progress there has been. Some of it is technological progress, some of it is material progress, but some of it is also what you might catalog as moral progress, though he interestingly has less to say about that than about the other kinds. And um, I mean, I think it's worth looking at some of the, some of the, the figures. Uh, if we look at some of the figures he mentions that you could connect to morality, it's interesting, and this is one of the big themes of Better angels, better angels of our nature, that the level of homicide uh, has dropped dramatically. Uh, for example, if you compare civilized uh, societies today to the few that remain or have remained recently that are more anarchistic and primitive, you have like up to 100 homicides per 100,000 in non-state primitive societies, but as low as two or three per 100,000 in Western Europe today. But Europe had been 100 per 100,000 just around the year 1300. And so it's declined uh, enormously. There's been a decline in the amount of judicial torture where you know government doesn't like, uh, maybe they think you're a witch. And so they torture <laughs> you to get you to confess. Uh, since uh, 1625, there were 16 countries um, still engaging in that. Now we have uh, none. Uh, obviously, there's been an increase in the number of countries that have abolished slavery. Uh, in 1575, Pinker notes that there were no countries that had abolished slavery. Now we have, uh, you know, uh, there were 65 in the year 2000. Likewise, in Enlightenment Now, he, he catalogs a number of things that might fit into this category. Uh, declining level of state executions. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the justifiability of the death penalty, it's, it's surely true there's been a lot of unjustifiable executions in the past, and that's gone from 
uh, 0.8 per 100,000 people in 1775 to now being scarcely measurable. You've had a decline in the percentage of years in which the great powers of the world were at war with each other. And you know, even if you think one of the sides of that war might have been justified because they were responding to an aggressor, well, somebody still had to start the war. And mm -hmm. all of the, I mean, it was nonstop war in the 1500s among the great powers. Um, you get to the 19th century, it like there's it, this is only happening half the time at most to almost not at all. And if you skip over the aberration of World War II, we'll come back to that. Uh, it's not happening at all right now. Yeah, Ben, I, I think if we take a second to just reflect on the ways in which we might think of this as moral progress, um, as opposed to just you know, uh, technological progress and, and, and what have you, um, <clears throat> just from the kind of common sense perspective of, well, there's a value in, um, my, uh, I have a value in my safety, my bodily integrity and autonomy, my ability to uh, lead my life as I see fit. I think from, from that perspective, um, the decline in violence is really um, fairly significant. The less I have to be worried about my neighbors robbing or killing me, and the less I have to be worried about my state killing me or conscripting me into um, into a, um, a war, the better. And we can add to those, I think, some more recent um, improvements. You mentioned the decline in slavery from start, starting in the 19th century, but at the same time, we also see an increase in um, the number or types of people um, viewed as deserving freedom. So there's the abolition of slavery, then there's expansion of voting rights, um, that first to um, you know free men and then eventually to women, and we see the uh, increased rights for uh, women and sexual minorities and um, and those sort of more recent developments. Yeah, so there's no question, and we're going to talk about in a moment uh, how there's still a lot of progress to be made in uh, in people's in the way people treat each other and treat themselves uh all around the globe but it's important to recognize that i mean there has been real progress in in civilization moral progress. over over the millennia and in fact that's something important to keep in mind if we're trying to understand how we can have more of it because it's an effect whose cause we can we can inquire into by looking at history and especially if we try to look at history uh, philosophically, which is one of the things that we're going to look at today. And we're going to think about what Ayn Rand had to say uh, from the perspective of her philosophy when she looked at history to try to understand what was the cause of progress and how that relates to progress in our thinking about morality. Since I mentioned Ayn Rand, I thought now would also be a uh, good time to start to discuss her views of this disparity uh, that that I mentioned. So um, I wanted to show a quotation from her. This is from a this is from an essay that's I think not widely read of hers from called the Moral Basis of Individualism in in 1943. And she's commenting on a figure of her day, someone named Edgar Edgar Queeney, who's to me strikes me as a kind of Stephen Pinker of the day, who's who's uh, writing a book about the progress of the ages and all the great progress they've made economically and and apparently also morally and but here's what she says about this and i think this should this should make you think she says it's generally recognized that mankind has achieved since its rise from savagery a miraculous progress in the realm of its material culture and none whatever in the realm of ethics our homes are superior to the cave of the Neanderthal man, but our morals are no better than his. Worse, if anything, for we do not have his excuse of ignorance. There's no act of inhumanity which he perpetrated and which we do not perpetrate, except that he did not possess our exquisite means of perpetrating it, and he could never equal our present scale. 
and here she mentions the, the author I was telling you about in a recently published book, The Spirit of Enterprise by Edgar Queenie, the author, intent upon a hymn to human progress, spends five pages describing man's material triumphs. Then he adds, our morals have come a long way too. The mere thought of a feast on a loose piece of human flesh, which the Bushman brings mouthwatering longing, is to us horrid and nauseating. That's what Queenie said, and here's her comment. This is all he can offer without equivocation for 10,000 years of man's spiritual growth. And even this claim is open to question because cannibalism occurred in Soviet Russia in the famines of 1921 and 1933, and God only knows or can bear the sight of what is occurring in Europe now. So she's writing that in 1943, when of course we are at the height of World War II, which uh, I mean, it's more than just an aberration. That's what I called it before. Uh, and it's interesting when you look at- well I, well, I think, Ben, that if we're looking at the scale, like like Pinker is of several hundred years, five, 700 years, um, it's a pretty strong indication that whatever um, was pushing us in a progressive direction is, uh, if not gone on this, on a steep decline. Um, because at the height of our technological progress, we have this uh, arguably the worst calamity in history. So, yeah, and obviously, when you look at a broad enough time scale, you can you can you can look at World War II and at the other disasters of the 20th century and, and say, well, that it's a blip, it's an aberration, but it, you know, it's a pretty big blip, and that is an attitude that Ayn Rand, I think, kept through the rest of the 20th century and even commented on it in some of her later writing, making the same kinds of observations. And so there's this, there's this quote that you were going to uh, share from yeah. an essay she wrote in 1975, which is called From the Horse's Mouth. I'll, just, I'll go ahead and put the whole thing up on the screen here. All right. This is an essay um, uh, from the 70s. She says, although the progress of theoretical science is slowing down, by reason of a flawed epistemology, among other things. The momentum of the Aristotelian past is so great that science is still moving forward while the humanities are bankrupt. So just to comment briefly, now we're shifting from talking about humanities increasingly, um, uh, increasing moral position to uh, our theoretical understanding of this. She says the humanities are bankrupt. Spatially, science is reaching beyond the solar system, while temporally, the humanities are sliding back into the primordial ooze. Science is landing men on the moon and monitoring radio admissions from other galaxies, while astrology is the growing fashion here on Earth, while courses in astrology and black magic are given in colleges, while horoscopes are sent galloping over the airwaves of a great scientific achievement television, um, scientists are willing to produce nuclear weapons for the thugs who rule Soviet, Un uh, Soviet Russia, just as they were willing to produce military rockets for the thugs who ruled um, Nazi Germany. So it's, it, I think it's clear that she, I mean, she maintained her attitude even, you know, 20 plus years after World War II. Things probably weren't as bad uh, in 1975 as they were in 1943, but I mean, she's still thinking about the events of the century and you know there's still some importantly mm -hmm. uh, devastating wars happening at the same time she's writing this um it's what do you think about that... if we were to take her perspective and look at the scene the political geopolitical scene today uh, do you think what what signs of progress or regress in our morals do we have today well two things stand out to me so one is a sign of sort of progress. If you look at the example she gives in those quotes of the humanities, astrology growing in fashion, um, I don't think that's the case anymore. We have other things in the humanities to, uh, to worry about, but not um, astrology. I think that's a, probably something peculiar to the 70s. As far as in... Um, in the wider culture outside of the humanities, I think there's some serious indication of moral regress. So it's been commented on this podcast um, more than a few times, the increase in tribalism um, that we've seen over the last uh, few decades, I think is a, 
significant sign of moral decay. And another um, sign that we were talking about last night, Ben, is the rise in um, substance abuse, deaths of desperation, I think is a troubling sign that seems to be um, plaguing both the secular cities and the more um, religious Bible Belt areas. So it's a kind of a, a, a sign that the country as a whole is, is in trouble. Yeah, I think that what you what you mentioned about tribalism is is really concerning and disturbing to me. And if if you want to give a a good concrete example of this, I mean, think about the level of basically civil unrest that we've had in this country just over the last year. Yeah. Uh, whether we're talking about the 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 riots that happened on the occasion of the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer. Uh, or the recent storming of the U.S. Capitol, I think it's opened up a window to show that there's there's still a real willingness by uh, people in what's thought to be the leader of the free world, what's thought to be the the leader of the civilized world, to just engage in resort to crude, brutal violence in order to get things done although it's also interesting that it's not even usually with the aim of getting things done it's worse than that it's with the aim of just causing trouble uh just mm -hmm. kind of destruction for the sake of destruction so i mean i think that uh, whatever progress we have achieved not only materially but in our moral values over over the centuries it's clearly fragile it's it's clearly something that can be uh, brought to a halt and put in reverse, given the right kinds of triggers. And so, and I think it's going to be fragile as long as we don't really understand what progress is and where it comes from, and what morality is and where it comes from. I mean, it's, it's interesting, Mike. Um, if, when Steven Pinker's books came out, he I think he gave a lot of people reason to be optimistic. He looked, they looked at the broad mm -hmm. sweep of history and they saw all this improvement materially, technologically, uh, and, and in some regards morally. But it's, it's also interesting when he's giving those statistics about uh, the level of uh, uh, deaths from war and uh, global conflict that World War II does that's often his benchmark like well things have been reducing so much since, since world then. war ii but why start there uh how does and we talked about this a, a, a moment before um you could regard it as a blip but it's a big blip and it was a big regression and pinker himself admitted in his book that he thought you know progress wasn't inevitable that that regression was possible that there were still existential problems confronting our civilization and that we need to understand the causes of progress in order to make it more reliable. So I think he's on the right footing about that. The question that I think we need to talk about today is, well, what are the causes of progress, both material and moral? How do they relate to each other? Uh, and what can philosophy tell us about this? Because whatever we're going to say about this, it's a complex subject. I think we're philosophers, we're not historians, we're not economists. Right. <laughs> so we should see if there's a, a philosophic angle that we can take on this, something that I think Pinker himself yeah. doesn't quite do enough to do. One of the things we can uh, ask ourselves as far as answering the problem is <clears throat> how to think about what counts as progress, and what counts as regress. So um, we gave some examples of so-called uh, supposed moral progress. And I said, there's a sort of common sense values justification for counting that as progress. But um, it's not uncommon to think that our values and value judgments are subjective. Um, and just having a, a clearer view on what standard we're using to count something as progress is part of both understanding it and preserving the progress. And I think uh, that's something we'll, we'll get to shortly. I think it's a really good point and, and raises a good question. And I think what's indisputable is that what counts as moral progress or what counts as moral 
uh, is certainly, especially if you're talking about progress, it's sometimes more obvious, sometimes less obvious. I don't think that makes it subjective. And we're, this is something we'll talk more about, I think, at the end of our conversation, especially because the conviction that morality is just subjective, that may well be one of the very causes of regress. Uh, I mean, if, if you have a large number of people who think there are no answers uh, in questions of, of moral philosophy, it, you know, anything goes. Well, is it a, is it a surprise if, 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 if anything goes? That is an excuse to do all kinds of terrible things. So we should talk more about the causes of progress. And here I want to, to bring in uh the perspective of and i think you you said something about this earlier mike that um we can't expect our progress to be reliable if there isn't an understanding of what this progress consists of and what makes it possible and if what we're talking about is what makes people better why do people act better why do they act worse this is it, it's definitely going to depend on their understanding of what they're doing. And you can see this both with regard to moral, but also other forms of progress. So like, for instance, if we're talking about our technological practices, we've gotten better at building certain kinds of machines that do all kinds of things for us. Uh, we know what we're doing. We figured out how to do things because we've made these advances in scientific understanding. I always like to give the example here of the, um, the steam engine, which of course was instrumental in making the industrial revolution happen when it did in, in Great Britain and America. And the reason that it really took off, the reason that it enabled new scales of production, especially in the, in the textile industry, was, was because of the new developments in physics that allowed uh, the engine to work at a scale where it was economically efficient. And a lot of people don't know that the ancient Greeks had actually developed a small scale version of the steam engine. And sometimes it's called hero's engine, but they couldn't scale it up. They couldn't make it do work. They couldn't make it uh, perform with efficiency. And, and that's in large part because to them, it was just sort of a curiosity. It was a toy. Uh, they didn't know why it worked. And so I, I give this as an example of you've got to know, you've got to understand how something works before you can really run with it, before you can you know, bring it to scale. And I think that's going to be true with moral progress as well, that you know, people have sort of stumbled upon certain kinds of rules of behavior uh, and have a certain perspective on you know, why it's good to do these things, but their understanding only goes down a certain level and so that we're sort of it's still at the same stage of hero's engine with morality and that's why it's a good we're, yeah. we're the, the, the progress there is so fragile yeah so if we want to think about what it is um that makes the technical technological progress possible you mentioned new developments in physics um but it's not just that there's new developments in physics there's a there needs to also be an attitude amongst uh, the society, um, a society that we're capable of solving problems rationally, where it's a, it's a um, thing worth doing. Um, and I, I think the wider point to make here is that the sci scientific progress follows uh, culture-wide valuation of reason, the human mind, human understanding. Um, <clears throat> you know, if we just kind of Think of historical examples, the, uh, the Greeks and uh, Enlightenment figures saw reason as central to human life, right? Um, and that's something that we don't see in other cultures and other periods of history within um, Western culture. Um, so if we're thinking about moral progress, there's a kind of, uh, and connecting it to technological scientific progress, thinking of them as all progressive, um, we should be on the lookout for connections between uh, moral thinking and the valuation of reason, I think. That's a really important point and something I definitely want to come back to today because it's a clue to 
the fact that even though we're talking about a certain kind of disparity here, the, the impressive results of scientific progress, the less than impressive results with moral progress, it may be that these are not necessarily separate issues, that there's a mm -hmm. connection between the material progress we've had and maybe some amount of moral progress. Moral progress. And it'll be interesting to talk about, well, which way does that connection go? Uh, I mean, one thing you could say is, well, we've gotten richer and therefore we're, I don't know, more comfortable and therefore less less need to kill each other. We don't need to kill each other as much. I mean, and there's probably some amount of that aspect that's true. But I think if you left it at that, you'd be you'd really be uh, missing the bigger picture, um, especially because if if you look at some of those uh, some of those forms of progress that we've talked about, both moral and material, we know that there were there were thinkers who were responsible for influencing those historical trends. So we know that just like if you talk about economics, there were economic thinkers, and they were influenced by moral philosophers. The Enlightenment thinkers definitely had something to do with the new age of peace and freedom that started to dawn at the end of the 18th century, which itself related to the material progress that followed. But what since since some kind of intellectual guidance is so important, since people need guidance from intellectuals to figure out how to do things, it would end up being a significant problem if there was a failure among intellectuals to provide the right kind of guidance. Uh, we, we mentioned previously that Ayn Rand had made observations about this disparity between material and moral progress. And one of the ways that she makes this point, especially if you look at her essay for the new intellectual, is to say that, e that even as scientists and businessmen were pushing us forward as a civilization in the 19th century, they were doing so kind of running on fumes, the leftover intellectual guidance of uh, philosophers from a few hundred years prior, even from a couple of thousand years prior, if you want to take the ancient Greeks into account. But meanwhile, the new philosophers of their age, the 19th century philosophers, which we'll say a little bit more about later, uh, they are abandoning some of the very lessons that this progress is building on. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about some specific examples of that shortly. Yeah, so Ben, something I wanted to bring up at this point too is that it's, it's, we shouldn't just think of it as there was a failure to um, offer positive guidance, which is true to a large extent. But also that there was a f uh, there were um, what advice we've gotten has been um, bad, and you can think of there think of this as a kind of um, the effect of that is a kind of crowding out. So if there's the illusion that we have a a, a rational um, or a scientific morality uh, on the table, there's a kind of pushing away of any um, uh, of some motivation to look for an alternative. Which is something I think is true of uh, 19th century ethics. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk a little bit more about what these thinkers had to say and and how their lack of good advice or actually positively bad advice may have contributed to our lack of moral progress as a civilization. So I mentioned and you mentioned previously, Mike, that you know, one of the signs of our failure to progress or even our our retrogression of late has been this descent into tribalism, this descent into yeah. people being pushed to join a, one of two warring factions where they're not really even uh, joining because they have some kind of intellectual conviction and set of values that the one faction stands for. It's often more, they need to pick sides so that they can fight against the other side. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Rand observed that she thought explained the more general level uh, or lack of moral progress in, in the past few hundred years is that 
when moral philosophers actually started to give moral advice, when they started thinking about moral philosophy, the content of the code of morality that they delivered was similar in very important ways to the exact same kinds of codes that you would expect from primitive tribes of people. In a primitive state of existence, people can't survive without ganging up for protection. They, they don't know anything about the world around them. Uh, they're, they're not yet, uh, you know, they've just recently evolved uh, into a new species, let's say. And this is part of the reason why she usually gives actually primitive people an excuse, like they don't know any better what they're doing. But once you live in a technological industrial civilization, and we know more, it's harder to excuse if the intellectual leaders of the day now start adopting codes of conduct that are hard to distinguish from what these primitive tribes would have offered. So if you're in a primitive tribe, you have to rely on a strong leader. You have to be willing to follow orders. You have to be willing to be sacrificed or even to sacrifice yourself for the good of the tribe. But if you look at the uh, at the most influential and popular theories of morality that were proposed by the most important thinkers of the early to late 19th century. You get, for instance, uh, somebody like uh, somebody like Immanuel Kant, who says morality is all about duty. It's not about the pursuit of your happiness. It's not about self-interest. It's about doing the right thing just because you've been issued a command from the noumenal self. We could go into the details of that later. Or John Stuart Mill, who's uh, one of the utilitarians, who says morality is all about basically doing things for the good of the tribe. He calls it the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Now, for a brief period of time, 100 years prior, in earlier Enlightenment thinkers had been flirting with different forms of individualism, which, which uh, didn't give this central place to duty or to the, the good of the whole. But they were brief. They were never defended in any great uh, depth. And what you end up getting is, I mean, Ayn Rand called it the tribal premise, that all of these ostensibly modern philosophical theories were working from. So it's like, if we're becoming tribalistic, is it is it any wonder if the moral theories that were being given by the alleged intellectual elites are not different in kind from what you would expect from codes of conduct for primitive existence. And on the question of the role of reason in our moral thinking, so we can, in, in when you have these new uh, 19th century moral philosophies, Kant and eventually Mill, um, in, in their content, they're not so different from the religious moralities they were taking over from. Um, so Kant asks us to sacrifice for duty's sake when, and the actual content of the advice he gives is fairly close to the same content that Lutheranism has given uh, earlier. Mills asking us to sacrifice to the greater good, which now there's no God figure in there, but um, we're, we're sacrificing for, um, you know, for our brothers or for our brother's keepers. And I think another point to bring out too, since we've been talking about tribalism is that there's the, there's a question of moral guidance, but there's also a question of, um, personal identity or, or how you, how you see yourself, um, in relation to others that it's not exactly uh, guidance, um, but you know, if you think about the sort of things you might learn in college over the last 25, 30 years um, about your own identity, um, your own identity, it's taught, is constituted by an intersection of different groups you belong to. Um, so there's, there's tribalistic elements going back um, 200 years, and there's also a kind of narrowing of the tribe over time uh, as well. And even in the kind of university version of, of intersectional tribalism, 
it's still an expectation that I mean, you're 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 viewed as as a product of this intersection, and you're viewed as needing to be subordinate to certain ways. So you stand for, you represent uh, your tribe. You're supposed to speak on yeah. behalf of it. You say, as a member of such and such intersectional group, this is this is what I think, and this is and you and you should respect me because of what I stand for. Which is, I mean, this is another version of. Uh, kind of group allegiance and even right. sacrifice to the group. I don't think it's an accident that they're um, more and more openly hostile to reason and science as a kind of one tribe's prejudice. So the scientific method, respect for logic, those sort of things are Western. So if you're in the Western charge, that uh, tribe, that's uh, your way of knowing. Um, and other tribes might have other ways of knowing. So there's a breakdown of the universalism that was um, more common to like Kant and, and Mill, which is a better um, than the more circumscribed little, little warring tribes where, as opposed to the tribe of humanity. Um, and there's also the devaluing of, of reason as one tribe's prejudice. So I think that's a good example of both regress in the culture and regress in people's thinking explicitly about moral topics. Good. And that's actually a, a good segue to the next point that I wanted to make, because I was talking earlier about how, if you look at the content of the moral thinking that occasioned our most recent decline in progress in morals, uh, it the content resembled what you would expect primitive tribes to practice. And this is a point that Ayn Rand often made. Um, she also made a point about method. She said that, well, to a primitive tribe, uh, something like morality is not seen as scientific. I mean, almost nothing's seen as scientific, but instead it's going to rely on the mystical revelation of the, you know, the tribal leaders. Mm -hmm. At bottom, that means relying on the feelings of whoever the revealed authorities are supposed to be. And she observes that even as science, the scientific method broke down one barrier after another, opening up new realms of existence to human reason for us to be able to understand and deal with it. This never happened in moral philosophies and, and especially not in the period when it was needed the most as we were gaining more and more power over the material world and were given more choices about things that we could do with it. We didn't get the guidance from science. We didn't get a scientific approach to morality. Uh, philosophers gave up trying to demonstrate a rational basis of morality. Even, you know, as, as you were saying, Mike, the more uh, systematic philosophers of this period, someone like Mill. I mean, Mill's even often regarded as someone who was trying to come up with a scientific morality. Utilitarianism says you should do whatever achieves the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And then you have to use science to kind of figure out, well, what kind of policies, if you do enough statistics, what kind of policies will have an impact on the greatest number of people? And then you, it's, it looks like what you're doing is science, scientific morality. But it's science within one aspect of answering a question, leaving the other aspect unchallenged. It, what's unchallenged is the assumption that morality consists of serving that greatest good. And what is Mill's argument for why that's the greatest good? What's his argument for that tribal premise content-wise? Well, it, it comes down to, well, that's, that's what Mill feels. It's, it's desirable because people desire it and he has an intuition. And most of the different cases that have been given for utilitarianism over the years don't differ from that substantially. And so you still have the foundations of morality dependent on the same kinds of feelings that tribal morality was thousands of years ago. So if, if we can't provide a foundation that's scientific, it kind of doesn't matter what else reason and science are doing. They're just slaves to the passions, as, as Hume would have put it, and he was the forefather of, of Mill in a number of ways there. Yeah, utilitarianism, I think, appeals to, a, or variations on it, appeal to um, a lot of people who are 
science interested, so they value science. Um, but I think that's what you said, Ben, is, is important to realize that even though it's dressed up in this, you know, you can um, kind of do some math about uh, different uh, people's preferences and, and the utility produced by uh, their satisfaction. At, at the root, I think there's a, there's a consensus amongst them that ultimately, ultimate values are not something, they're not the business of reason. That is saying what the ultimate end is or the, or the root justification of all this is a non-rational um, consideration. Reason's role is concerned with means, not ends. Um, and that's the extent to which morality could be um, scientific uh, in, in this, you know, from this perspective. I think both of these considerations, both the kind of tribalistic content and method of the major moral codes are important to note. And we probably shouldn't spend too much time on this because I'm looking at the clock and we need to we need to move ahead. But both of them, insofar as they amount to calling for the kind of tribalistic sacrifice that was responsible for so much stagnation in ancient times. I mean, is it any wonder that when these theories start getting taken seriously, when they gain cultural currency, you start to get the disasters of the 20th century. You start to get um, the mass slaughter, the mass sacrifice of victims um, that you saw, for instance, in, in, in World War II. Ben, I, I think an important point to add to that is something you brought up when we were speaking earlier, that insofar as these so-called scientific moralities actually give us any guidance, it's guidance about how to sacrifice, how to resolve conflicts between people. It doesn't give us a lot of, and this ties into some of the things you raised in your uh, article on this the other week, that it doesn't give us a lot of content as far as how I should live my life uh, apart from my conflicts with other people. Um, and to the extent that some moralities do, for example, like religious moralities, modern religious moralities, they give us non-reality based advice. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of non-sacrificial moral guidance out there of any, uh, you know, of any variety. Well, how are we going to dig ourselves out of this hole? <laughs> Um, I'll make one sort of meta point, and then I think we can look at what the actual digging would look like. So I, I did, uh, I published an article on New Ideal a few weeks ago called Why Scientific Progress in Ethics is Frozen, and I'll give a, a link to that later at the end of our broadcast. But uh, one of the things that I talk about in this article is that if you look at the way today's moral thinkers talk about morality, one telltale sign of the fact that they're not looking for or finding a scientific foundation of their discipline is when they talk about just the concept of morality itself, it's revealing how often they simply equate it with obligations we owe to other people, especially obligations we have to sacrifice to other people. The same tribal premise view of morality that we've just been discussing. And what's especially unscientific about it is that it ignores many of the thinkers throughout history who've simply had a different view of what morality is. And I'm not even talking about thinkers that I necessarily agree with. I mean, for instance, like religious thinkers who thought morality consists of obligations that you have to God. Now that's not another person. Now maybe it's still another being, but that's, that's if you look at some of the things Steven Pinker and Michael Shermer and Sam Harris write about morality, they don't even count that as morality in their definition. It's, they have a very narrow definition of morality and it, it ends up especially ignoring some of the revolutions in ethics that were much more rational than religious ethics. You, ancient Greek philosophers thought of ethics as the subject concerned with deciding what it is to live a good life. 
uh, and sometimes that included relationships and obligations to others, but certain of the moral virtues that the ancient Greeks talked about were not primarily concerned with others. You have virtues like courage, you have virtues like temperance, virtues like wisdom. And so these, these theories just get excluded even as data points in people's thinking about what morality, what the subject of morality is. Uh, Ayn Rand called this the fallacy of the frozen abstraction, which she said was substituting some one particular concrete for the wider abstract class to which it belongs. For instance, in this case, substituting a specific ethics, altruism, the morality of self-sacrifice, uh, for the wider abstraction of ethics. And I mean, if you if you took the same approach to other concepts in any other area of science, where you just equated the overall concept with one particular theory, you would you would uh, you wouldn't have scientific progress. And I give examples of how the concept of heat required a broadening like this concept of planet. We don't have to go into those details. Um, did you want to say more, uh, anything more about that before we go to our last big topic? Um, just to make the, I think it's worthwhile to make the point explicit about why this is so difficult um, or has been so difficult. So, what we're trying to do in a sense is um, use examples of what we take as moral historical moral progress in order to bootstrap a theory of what moral progress is. Um, and we're trying to do this in a way that's not, you know, not question begging, um, but also not um, trying to avoid being rationalistic about this, where we just have some a priori theory of uh, of what the good is that we then fit to the historical examples. And I think what we've been saying, Ben, is that part of the way to do this is to take a look at the what our conception of a scientific anything is, so what a con our conception of science and the value of reason is, and then talk about what its value is, what it's, you know, and, and what the basis for thinking about, uh, about that is. Uh, and then we can ask what, which moral question, which moral principles are consistent with that and, and then to what degree. Yeah, I think there's two dimensions of what you're talking about, which we're about to touch on. One is, okay, let's be scientific when we're uh, approaching the subject of morality. Let's look at all the different codes that people have theorized about, not rule any of them out. Let's look at the values that they advocated and what impact they had on human life. But also, didn't science itself have values of its own? Isn't there a scientific method? And what did it value? And is there a way that the values of the scientific method could actually be incorporated into the values of a moral approach? So let's let's say just a little bit more about that. And before we wrap up with this last big point, I'll just tell people who are in the audience, uh, we're, we're definitely interested in hearing your questions. We've had a few come in, but we could use some more. Uh, if you're in Zoom, best place to put those questions is in the Q&A module. Hover over your screen, there's a Q&A button at the bottom. If you're on YouTube, a super chat question is the best way to get your question to rise to the top. So what would an actually progressive morality look like? Now here I'm not using progressive in the contemporary sense. I mean, one that uh, one that is able to enable human moral progress and one that maybe accounts for and explains the other kinds of progress material scientific that we've experienced. I mean, I think what you wanna do if we've seen moral progress in the past to whatever limited extent it's happened, you'll want to look at, well, what were the codes of values that made that progress possible? What ideas prompted people to end slavery? What ideas prompted people to end large-scale global conflicts? Uh, and what ideas enabled people to engage in the other kind of material progress that we've been talking about, which has not been incidental from a moral perspective either? I mean, I'll just share one last quotation uh, from a different Ayn Rand essay, which I think touches on this important point. This is from her essay, What is Capitalism?, which ostensibly is on a political economic subject, but delves into a lot with regard to value theory. It, as she talks about the tribal premise that we were discussing and the havoc that it's wrought 
politically and economically on the world. But here's where she explores a, the connection between a basic moral issue and the material progress that we've experienced. She says, what needs special emphasis is the fact that this progress, and she's speaking of the progress of the 19th century, was achieved by non-sacrificial means. Progress cannot be achieved by forced privations, by squeezing a social surplus out of starving victims. Progress can come only out of individual surplus, i.e. from the work, the energy, the creative overabundance of those men whose ability produces more than their personal consumption requires. Those who are intellectually and financially able to seek the new, to improve on the known, to move forward. In a capitalist society where such men are free to function and to take their own risks, progress is not a matter of sacrificing to some distant future. It's part of the living present. It's the normal and the natural. It's achieved as, as and while men live and enjoy uh, their lives. And now consider the alternative, which we've been talking about some already, the tribal society where all men throw their efforts, values, ambitions, and goals into a tribal pool or common pot, then wait hungrily at its rim while the leader of a clique of cooks stirs it with a bayonet in one hand and a blank check on all their lives in the other. And tellingly, she ends with this note, which she says more on, on in the rest of the essay, the most consistent example of such a system is the union of Soviet socialist republics, which is, of course, where she's herself a refugee from. And it's what she's reflecting on when she's thinking about the disasters of the 20th century as, you know, a, a counterexample to the idea that there has been, you know, ongoing moral progress. It looks like there hasn't been. This is one of those big aberrations. And one of the things she's saying is, if you look at the intellectual causes of this disaster, it's precisely this kind of tribal morality uh, that, that she opposes. Maybe we should touch just very briefly again on the other point about method, because there is a set of values that the scientific method itself embraces. What is a scientist's value? A scientist values rationality, the pursuit of truth, the rejection of prejudice, the rejection of convention. It amounts to the idea that we should sacrifice nothing to the truth, that we should sacrifice nothing to our first-handed grasp of reality. And of course, that's what enabled all the kinds of technological progress and discoveries that have added abundantly to our material progress. But if, if what if those scientific values are themselves of the sort that could be injected into or infused into a moral perspective? What else could that do for our view of morality? Yeah, Ben, I think to... As I understand what we're trying to do, um, we might put it this way. We have these set of scientific values and we're asking ourselves which moral um, principles are either consistent with them or embodied them and which clash with them. And I think the Rand quote you uh, picked up was really interesting um, because she's making the case that the, the principle of sacrifice conflicts with all of those things that uh, go into the into the technological progress. Yeah, and maybe now is a good time to, to wrap up with, with just a preview, and there's so much more that we could say about this, but I still want to get to some questions about the, the code of morality that Ayn Rand ended up formulating herself. And I think she did so by looking at both of the kinds of considerations that we've been talking about, the issues of content and method. She wanted, she looked to the values that made progress possible, and she looked to the values of science and she put them together. Uh, she formulated a code of ethics that called for the individual to pursue rational knowledge needed to be a productive achiever, and identified a number of attendant virtues that she thought were essential to this, whether the virtue of honesty, independence, integrity, justice, and others. And she tried to validate these virtues and show their scientific basis by showing how they serve the purpose of human life, which is a which is a, a point about facts about human nature, facts about basically human biology. And she argued that it was, you know, some sense of some awareness of these facts on one level or another or another that was what 
pushed civilization along. Some people were able to practice these, these virtues knowingly or unknowingly. And it was to the extent that they knew that and did that, that civilization moved forward. Do you think, Mike, we should we should take some of the questions that are coming in? Or did you want to yeah. offer any last uh, round well, of questions? I think we have one question here that we might want to, uh, well, we have a few. Let, let me start with this one. Okay. Um, one of the questioners asked, doesn't a scientifically based ethics have to be based on the observations of reality, the nature of reality, the nature of man, and the nature of life all integrated together? Um, all integrated together. So I think that's what we've, that's in, in essence what we've, what we've been trying to do. So um, particularly with respect to the nature of uh, the nature of man and the nature of life. So we've been saying that there's certain, um, there's certain facts about what makes progress possible in the technological area. And we've been thinking and the scientific area, and we've been thinking about what those, um, what the facts about that progress say about um, what would be required for moral progress. And then the question about the nature of life, I think comes up when you're at the point of giving like an ultimate justification of, of, your, uh, of your ethics. Um, did you wanna add anything, uh, Ben? Not too much more, but I will give some resources when we wrap up after questions where I think uh, people can learn more about the nature of the validation that Ayn Rand gave to her code of ethics and how it depends on observations, the kinds of observations this questioner is asking about, the observations of reality, the nature of man, the nature of life. I mean, in a nutshell, the her view is that it's it's the very fact of life, the very fact of the nature of living organisms that gives rise to the whole realm of value concepts in the first place. That it's because living systems are these delicate uh, states, are, exist only to the extent that they're in a delicate state of equilibrium where just the right kind of things have happened, where just the right steps have been taken, the right kind of processes and, and activities have been enacted that allows them to continue to exist and that all kinds of things can go wrong but you know only a narrow range of things can go right that's where the whole concept of right and wrong comes from the concept of value and disvalue comes from from the need of living organisms that are acting in the face of threats to their existence to act in certain ways to preserve their existence that's and that's in the case the of essence of her value theory yeah and in the for, for um you know for the case of human beings it's those values and principles that go into scientific and technological progress, which are some of the prerequisites for, for human life. And when we you know, generalize them into a more, uh, uh, into moral guidance, um, we can live up to them more consistently. Good. Yeah. There's another question that came in that I have a little something to say that might be interesting. I don't know if it's quite what the person's asking about, but someone asks, around the time of the American Civil War, uh, were these, well, the person's asking about what were the emotionalistic philosophers that we were talking about? What did they have to do with any of this? Did any of them defend slavery? Uh, I don't know that they did. Uh, I think that by this, that by this period of time, the tide in the intellectual world, in the secular intellectual world, had turned against slavery, even among some of the philosophers that we mentioned. John Stuart Mill, for instance, was, was a rabidly abolitionist and a supporter of the American Civil War for that reason. Um, but there is another aspect of intellectual history that was going on before the Civil War that I think is very important, that it's underappreciated and it's one that I'd like to study more myself. Because, uh, of course, in America, before the war, most, most people were Christian and most of the abolitionists were also Christian. Of course, most of the people who supported slavery on the other side were Christian as well. And it's very interesting to look at the theological differences between the northern christians and the southern christians that accounted for their different views about slavery so for instance and, and this is the one that i find the most interesting northern 
Protestants were, I mean, a prominent example here is the Quakers. Uh, many of the Quakers were, were instrumental in the abolitionist movement. And one of the theological aspects of Quakerism and, and related doctrines is a skepticism, if not a rejection of the idea of original sin. Now, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, that it was something about the scientific worldview that necessarily directly influenced the, the Quakers and other abolitionist thinkers and being skeptical about original sin. But I mean, one thing's for sure that if you, if you do believe in original sin uh, and you think that human beings are destined by their nature to be sinners, then that enables all kinds of rationalization for evil. Uh, hey, we're just sinners. We can't help the fact that we're holding slaves. And by the way, these people we are enslaving, they're even bigger sinners. And so, so somebody needs to restrain them. But if you believe in moral perfectibility, you can, you can conceive of the idea of abolishing a ancient institution that's been around for thousands of years, even though a whole nation of people thinks it's okay. If you are skeptical about original sin, you can, you can conceive of forms of moral radicalism that I think other thinkers aren't in a position to do. And, and it's interesting to say, I, I don't know what accounts for why the, the various theologies of the day were more skeptical about original sin than they used to be, but there were a number of them that were. Uh, and I mean, it's a fact that uh, the Industrial Revolution lays bare and brings into stark contrast the way in which we can be the crafters of our own destiny. And so, I mean, I would be surprised if there wasn't some connection there, but again, it's something that I need to, I need to research more myself. Um, were there any other questions that we wanted to take a look at? There's actually a bunch that just came in from Zoom. I don't know if we're gonna have time to look at all of these. But looking at them quickly, I'm not convinced that we're going to be able to give them a, a good enough answer in the time that we have left. And we are already out of we're, we're over the hour we usually spend. So I think that we should start to wrap things up and, and thank people for the questions that they did submit. Apologize that we weren't able to get to more questions. Um, but let me start by just sharing some resources if you'd like to learn more about some of the topics that we discussed today. Uh, I'm, I quoted a few moments ago from what is capitalism. That's an essay Ayn Rand wrote. It's the lead essay in the in, the, in her book *Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal*. Uh, this is a book that's you know mostly about politics and economics, but this essay I think uh, delves very deep into the connection between the tribal premise in morality and economic and other material stagnation. There's a lot in this essay that relates to what we were talking about today. And if you'd like to see a worked out uh, version of Ayn Rand's own theory of ethics. Best place to look for that is her essay, The Objective Ethics, which appears in The Virtue of Selfishness. Also, there's been uh, work on some of the issues we've discussed today that we've written on recently in our journal, New Ideal. I'd recommend taking a look at Ankar Gatte's essay, Finding Morality and Happiness Without God. That, would, that appeared in New Ideal back, I think in its, its inaugural run, uh, back in May of 2018. You can get to that essay quickly by going to bit.ly slash finding hyphen, hyphen morality, finding hyphen morality. And then I also wrote an essay recently, which I mentioned briefly a while ago, why progress in ethics is frozen. That's taking a look at the fallacy of the frozen abstraction as it applies in contemporary ethical thinking, looking at how some of these contemporary secular thinkers like Pinker have 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 used an overly narrow concept of morality and how that is responsible for some of the lack of progress. If you go to bit.ly slash frozen ethics, uh, that will take you straight to that essay. And otherwise, I'd like to just let people know that if you enjoyed our podcast today, if you'd like to be able to follow us in the future, if you're watching on YouTube, please like this video on YouTube. That helps optimize the algorithm so more people will see these episodes. Consider subscribing to us on YouTube and clicking that bell to get notifications for when we post new videos and go live with other podcasts. Please do the same thing if you can on Facebook. If you like this episode on Facebook, that will help more people see it. And if you have questions about material that came up today, or if you'd like to suggest new topics for future episodes, 
please send us an email at newideal at ironrand.org. We read everything that comes into this uh, address and we respond to many of the questions that people ask. And we sometimes will even do episodes on topics that people suggest. Last of all, I'd like to let people know about next week's episode of New Ideal Live. Uh, this will be uh, one of our returning guests, Dr. Amish Adalja. Ilan Jorno will be interviewing him on the topic of the vaccine rollout. That's our topic for next week. I hope that many of you will join us for that. Mike, thanks very much for, for joining us on your inaugural uh, uh, episode of New Ideal Live. It's good to have you here. Thank you. And thanks everyone else for joining us. We will see you all next week for more. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.